Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on New Books in Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. I have a really exciting guest. I'm so excited to talk about uh, her new book uh, with her. This is Anne Bracken. She She has published three poetry collections, The Altar of Innocence, No Barking in the Hallways, Poems from the Classroom, Once You're Inside, Poetry Exploring Incarceration, and a memoir entitled Crash, a memoir of over-medication and recovery. She serves as a contributing editor for the Little Patuxent Review, I should have asked how to say that, and and co-facilitates the Wild Readings Poetry Series in Columbia, Maryland. And she's a frequent contributor to Mad in America's Family Section. She volunteers as a correspondent for the Justice Arts Coalition, exchanging letters with incarcerated people to foster their use of the arts. Her poetry, essays, and interviews have appeared in numerous anthologies and journals. Her work has been featured on Best American Poetry, and she's been a guest on Grace Cavalieri's The Poet and The Poem Radio Show. Her advocacy work promotes using the arts to foster paradigm change in the areas of emotional wellness, education, and prison abolition. I am so excited today to talk to you, Anne, about your memoir, Crash, and um, the the collection, Once You're Inside. We'll also hear a little taste from your first book, The Altar of Innocence. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. Great to meet you, Megan. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Um, It's great to finally get to talk in real time. We've been um, exchanging emails since I uh, read your book, Crash, and uh, reviewed it on Mad in America, so we are... um, blog mates something like that on mad in america um and then uh i love that you started the conversation by reaching out and responding i haven't had that happen before when i read or i've reviewed books so this is awesome i love that um building community with writers can happen um just by uh reaching out and, and sharing so i would love to start uh by talking about crash um so uh how did you decide what to include and what to leave out since it's a memoir um it's, it's nonfiction. it's all your your side of the story as it were um but i'm sure there's some things that you you didn't or couldn't include also um i guess the things i didn't include would be the more tangential things like i didn't talk a whole lot about my siblings Um, I talked a little bit about them when I talked about my mother's story and my years of growing up. And I didn't, I didn't talk that much about my children. I, I have two children. They're hardly children. They are adults. They're both in their forties. But they were much younger when I was going through this experience of severe depression and chronic pain. And it was a very painful time for them as well. Very difficult to watch me suffer and to watch the things that were going on in the home. So I didn't write much about them. Um, I, you know, I kept it to me and my ex-husband and the doctors and a little bit with my kids when it, when it was important for the story. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And was that kind of, because it was like, this is your story. They, have their own versions and their own experiences and ways to tell. And you wanted to kind of leave that to them when they, when, and if they were ready to talk about that, cause they were so young. Right. Was- my, my daughter has talked to me a whole lot more about it than my son. I don't think they both have a copy of the book. Uh, I don't think either one has read it mostly because they, it's hard for them to go back and revisit. Yeah, totally. It was, it was a extremely, I would say challenging in a good way for someone like me to read, uh, who at the, before I, this was before I knew you, before I met you, it was, this book was recommended to me based on the kinds of books that I read and review. Um, because I, I feel very drawn to these stories and these experiences, um, because they, they seem to get kind of overlooked in, in the mainstream culture. That's kind of changing, I think, but, um, but, there's a there is a good subset of people who need these stories because there's they've experienced some, something similar and they kind of feel alone and like no one else understands yeah, um, was there a was 
was there a motive or uh, I want to say maybe like drive more so to write this this book? It is it is an excruciating story for sure. Multiple stories, multiple reasons why this is such an excruciating story. Um, and of course, that's not bad. Uh, that's not a, a criticism. Um, but I just wonder, like, was there a motive and was there like what kept you going through the whole story to write the whole thing? I- I would say that what started me writing the memoir was watching a YouTube video with Sam Quinones, who wrote the book Dreamland. And that came out in either 2016 or 2017. And he was talking about doctors prescribing opioids in the 90s. Up till that, I don't know what universe I was living in but I was not aware of the opioid epidemic. I think I was really focused on working. I was just working a lot. I was dating some, I, you know, I just had a very full life and I wasn't paying that much attention to the opioid epidemic. But when I saw Sam talk about this book and I heard him say, um, you know, the doctors prescribed it to people and they told everybody that they wouldn't get addicted if they used it for pain. I thought, oh my God, that is exactly what happened to me. And I I did not even know of the possibility. You know, I kept saying to the doctors, well, this is an opioid. You know, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I don't want to become addicted to this drug. And I think what... I don't have any proof of this, but the only logical conclusion I can come up with is that I didn't become addicted because the drug never made me feel good and the drug never took away the pain. I still had pretty severe migraine pain despite taking Oxycontin, MS Cotton, and finally methadone. Wow. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't the yeah, that makes sense that it wouldn't cuz it, it the opioid addiction is I I mean what I've heard I've never experienced it but what I've heard is um it it is both immediate and creeps up on you. Yes. But yes. If it didn't affect you, like if it just didn't do anything, like why why would I still have the problems from? And, the- and I thought back on a conversation I had with my doctor over and over and over again. I was so, uh, I might've been taking a lot of drugs and I certainly was, but they were all under you know, the auspices of prescription. I was taking all the drugs, just like the doctors prescribed them, the amounts that they prescribed. They were the ones that were over-prescribing. I wasn't overusing, so to speak. But one day when I went to see my headache doctor, she said to me, don't cut the pills in half. And I said, okay, but I'm not going. I never thought about it. And she said, because the drug will get into your system too fast. And over the years, I've thought back on that. And and I think she knew about the addictive potential for the drug and that people were cutting them in half and crushing them and snorting them or injecting them. I think she knew that. And so she was just giving me that. She was sort of like feeling me out, I guess. I don't know. Oh, and yeah, probably maybe trying to avoid something without actually directly telling you. Yes, exactly. Wow. And is that the feeling that you got um, with with your providers? I mean, I know I know this is this is in the book, but for uh, for people who have not read the book um, that that when like, does it, does it work to confront a doctor when you're like, Hey, something's wrong or, Hey, I read this study or, Hey, are you noticing? I mean, do you see the, like the, you're prescribing me an opioid. Are you aware that this is a problem? Um, when, when you did those things, did it, did it appear like they were just ignorant of it or did it appear that they, they knew and they did not want to 
Well, when, when I talked to the headache doctor about the opiates, she, she said it wasn't a problem. She used the line that Purdue Pharma was telling everybody to use, that if you were using it for pain, you couldn't become addicted. Now, when I did the research for the book, I did a really deep dive into opiates and and educated myself about all kinds of aspects. And the first thing I discovered was that oxycodone which is commonly used in Percocet and Vicodin and mixed with either Tylenol or aspirin in those drugs. So oxycodone was invented in 1916. It's a very, very old drug. They knew that it was addictive because they had problems with people with Percocet and Vicodin and oxycodone all by itself. But they succumbed, the doctor, all I can figure is that the doctors succumbed to the marketing that the same exact drug in continuous release somehow was not going to make people addicted. So first of all, the lie is that the drug lasted for 12 hours. They really knew that it only lasted for eight hours. And so people would start getting what they called breakthrough pain at eight hours and, you know, they'd be dying for the next dose. I, I don't remember that happening. I, I don't remember a lot of things about that particular experience. But the more I learned about the opiates, the more I was angry that that had happened to me. And, I'm, you know, and also that I had car crashes. You know, I'm just lucky i feel like you said the book was excruciating i think it was in some ways but it's also really hopeful because here i am i'm fine i got off the drugs i don't need them i don't have a migraine anymore you know i i feel like i can tell this tale and and show people a different way that's true you are you're here to write the story and as, as excruciating as it was, it has a hopeful ending um, because you you were able to get through um, the the migraines, the the mental anguish, I'm going to call it, because um, I, I don't really like the word mental illness because I think some types of emotional and mental suffering are a correct response to our environment. And that is that is your story, too, is like. Oh, when you got to the actual root of the problem, then, which which was always there, uh, it turns out the the drugs weren't wouldn't. The reason they didn't make you feel better is because that they that wasn't the real problem. They weren't actually treating the real problem because you can't treat what the real problem was with medication. And how it's it's amazing to me. I still am trying to figure out. Like I guess maybe medical doctors might not know that, but psychiatrists. All I can say is that th this is my framework, and I talk about it in the book, too, that, that everybody has a model of how things work. And I think this was in the 90s and the early 2000s, so we're in the age of Prozac being the savior drug. You know, I remember my therapist recommending, oh, go read, what was it, Listening to Prozac by Peter Kramer. You know, it's going to make you better than well. Um, I remember that phrase because it was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. You know, that this is fabulous. But even, even with that, I, it never made sense to me. I kept saying to the doctor, so you're telling me that I have this chemical imbalance in my brain and I'm fine for all these years. And then one day I have this chemical imbalance. And then I need to take drugs for the rest of my life. I said, that doesn't make any sense. And they're like, yes, well, that's that's what it is. And you just need to take this these drugs forever. You know, and if this one doesn't work, we'll give you another one or we'll give you a combination and we'll find the way out. So they were they were stuck in a model, I think. I don't think they were as tuned into the human suffering piece. Um and the 
they they weren't looking at the reasons for depression. They were just hearing somebody come in. This person's depressed. She's taken three different antidepressants. Nothing's worked. Let's try another one. I think I think that's where they came from. And then they come up with things like treatment resistant. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily they weren't using that with me at the time, but I guess essentially that is definitely how I'd be classified now as treatment resistant. And that's the other thing that, you know, another reason I wanted to write this book is to tell people, look, if you're not getting better, you're not resisting any kind of treatment. It's probably not the right treatment. You know, if it's not working, don't keep doing more of it, which is, which is the model that psychiatry uses. Right. Yeah, if it doesn't work, do more. <laughs> and layer drugs to deal with the side effects and which that term never made sense to me. All, all, all side effects are effects. They're just effects, all of them. Um, so how did you know you were ready to start writing this memoir? Um, I mean, emotionally, I know there was like research that went into it, of course, but... Um, I think we had had an email exchange about it's more the intention behind the words rather than the actual words. Um, because, and I experienced that too with my own writing. When I read something back to myself that I've written, I'm like, I was clearly angry when I wrote that. <laughs> but the same exact words with a different spirit behind it, different heart behind it can come across very differently. So yeah, so how did you know when you were ready to start writing Crash? You know, I was just ready after I heard Quinones. It was like I had I had done a lot of forgiveness work around my marriage and my ex-husband, and that was continuing. And I had done a lot of forgiveness work, particularly related to my father, because when I was growing up, I really blamed him in a lot of ways for enabling my mother's illness. He he thought he could control her drinking. And, you know, when I confronted him about alcoholism, he, he got really, really angry with me and told me to just butt out and leave him alone. And it was none of my, you know, none of my business, all this kind of thing. So I had, when I wrote my first poetry collection, The Altar of Innocence, I had done a lot of healing work then. But, you know, the memoir it, it just, it was like it had to be. It was like, oh my God, there's this opioid crisis. I was part of it. I could have killed somebody under the influence of these drugs. I could have killed or greatly injured myself. You know, um, I, I need to tell this story. And then having read um, Whitaker's book, The Anatomy of an Epidemic, and learning all about the other lies around antidepressants, or as Peter Gersha likes to call them, depression drugs, um, and and the way that they combine things and the way that they can change your brain, I was like, God, I'm just so lucky to be here. I have to tell this story. So it was really more like, I have to tell this story. This story is important. And th that's the reason all this stuff happened to me is because I can tell this story. Oh, I love that. Yes, that, um, yeah, not to overemphasize the, it, it is, it's a excruciating story at the hands of, I would say, big pharma and um, doctors who maybe they should know better. Maybe they, maybe they don't because of medical school, because of the infiltration of the drug companies into medical, the whole medical establishment. Um, I kind of think of it as Stockholm syndrome. Uh, the doctors have Stockholm syndrome related to big pharma, but, um, I don't, um, I don't know that, you know, all, I don't want to just like lump all doctors in, in one category. Uh, but also it does end with, uh, cause the, the subtitle is over, uh, story of re recovery or over medication and recovery. And the point is the recovery and that is when you got to the actual root of the problem, which is not a random brain imbalance, um, chemical imbalance, which is the, that's still a theory, a myth. It's actually a myth. It's not, 
been proven mostly been disproven actually um as far as i know uh and it's not yeah like that's right it doesn't you're all of a sudden your brain breaks like what that what <laughs> um but then yeah you don't get real answers um until yeah you really have to you have to do a lot of digging as as a patient yes and and that you know i feel like that's part of that's another thing is like I've done the research I still run into people like last week I did a presentation and I was sitting at a table with a bunch of authors and an agent and the agent asked me to give him the pitch for my book so I gave him the pitch and he said um well I, I know a lot I know all kinds of things about depression I know lots about antidepressants and they work for a lot of people and then he just turned and said, and what is your book about? Turn to somebody else. It's so bizarre, isn't it? How so, how deeply it's infiltrated, like every aspect of the culture. Yes. It's like when I first read, I read uh, Bob Whitaker's book too. And, I, and I was, initially I was like, okay, yeah, all of this stuff makes sense. And then I kind of forgot that it's not common knowledge. It was just like, oh, oh. Obviously. And then I would keep running into people who'd be like, well, you know, if you, I, I only take anti-meds, anti-medication when I need them. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. Also, do you know anything about the long-term effects? Of that's the thing that makes me the most angry is that they've hidden all that stuff too. Anytime they would give me a new drug, I would read the package insert. So of course I was reading all about the adverse effects and I would ask them and they would always say, no, that hardly ever happens. I don't know anybody that's happened to. And when I took one drug, I remember Effexor, I I think I had akathisia. I, I just felt like I had uh, caffeine in my bloodstream. Like I was so jittery and so hopped up and wired. And I, they, they made me stay on the drug for six weeks. And I kept saying, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm all jittery inside. And, you know, I'm, I'm anxious and no, no, it'll work. It'll work. You know, they weren't, they weren't listening to me. Right. Right. Yeah. And then another doctor put me on it. And I said, look, I've already taken this. It didn't work. I felt terrible. And he says, well, you didn't, you haven't taken it with me <laughs> as if he's magic or something, you know, as if Dexter knows. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's just, oh, they, for this they, guy. they believe in the drugs so much because Which, a lot of them take the drugs too. Ah, uh, that's, I was going to say, that's the Stockholm syndrome, right? They like, it has to work. It has to work because if it doesn't work, then not only am I worried about the patients, but now I'm worried about like my own stuff, my own mental health, my own, then I might have to actually face what's really going on, which is harder to deal with than just a pill. Unless you have horrible side effects and then maybe not. Right. Well, the, the thing, the other thing I learned in reading Whitaker's book, you know, I did go ahead and, and have electroconvulsive therapy, which I would absolutely never do again. I would never recommend it to anybody. I'm vehemently against it, but I felt dead inside. I could not feel anything. And I kept telling the doctors, I can't feel anything i i just if i can't feel anything if i can't connect to life i just want to die and when i read whitaker's book i thought it was the drugs it wasn't me it wasn't the depression it was the effect of the drugs it's called emotional numbing um I'm, i was telling them and i was telling them for a long time that this was how i felt and they just you know yeah. yeah, that that I've heard too is the it what's worse than feeling sad or grief or anger or even you know the the, the like deepest sadness is actually feeling nothing. I wonder if that uh this is I mean it's I guess it's not total speculation. Um I wonder, I've heard a theory uh, in several places that part of what's fueling some of the like mass violence in 
American society. Obviously, it's a complicated issue. There's no one thing that's going to fix it all. But is the emotional numbing effects of medication. Yes, I have heard that too. And that really makes sense to me that you're numbed, you're blunted, you don't, you, you don't empathize, you don't care as much, you know, and you're, you're young too. So you don't really know yourself and you don't know yourself enough to question all of this. Yeah, I've heard that too. And, and, you know, when I think of all the ECT I had, that was so unnecessary, completely unnecessary, that I was over-drugged for a long time, you know, and that was what was causing me to feel like I was so dead inside. I remember standing in my kitchen and making dinner and looking at my kids and thinking, I can see life, but I can't feel any life. I feel like I'm in a phone booth and I just can look out of the phone booth but I can't touch anything. It was, it was awful. It's just awful. That sounds like probably, I mean, I have not experienced that, but that sounds worse than some of the worst sadness or grief that I think I've experienced. It's like, yeah, that's not pleasant. I really am glad I'm not there in that place now, but that's definitely, at least I was, I was so engaged. That's what, I, that's what made the grief so deep is I was so engaged with the thing, the person, the experience that I lost and to just not have that is like, what is the point? And so you did, you did recover. Um, it, you tell that, so I won't give that away. That's in, that's in crash. But um, what would you say uh, has been the, the, the best part of recovery. I don't know if you if you conceptualize it as okay, this it's this lifelong thing. Do you conceptualize it as recovered period? Um, is it an ongoing journey? And then what has been maybe like the some of the best fruits that have come of the because it's still it was still work. It was still a lot of work to undo the effects of the treatment, quote unquote, that you received, and then to actually deal with the root of the problem on top of all of that. So what has been that, what has been the best fruit of that? And um, how do you conceptualize the journey of recovery? So I, I will not give away the whole story, but I will say the, the real actual cause of the depression was a, a very unhappy marriage where my ex-husband verbally abused me for years. And because of the time that I was raised in and all the men in my family who did the same thing that my husband did, although never to the extent that he did, I would just call it mean teasing, you know? And I think a lot of women have experienced mean teasing where somebody will put you down and you'll get upset and then they'll just say, oh, come on, honey, you know, I really love you. Don't, you're just too sensitive. Don't be so sensitive, sweetie. It was you know, just a joke. Yeah, It was just a joke. That what, What's the matter with you? Grow a thicker skin. So I grew up like that. I grew up being told I was too sensitive and, you know, I shouldn't cry because they, you know, they really didn't, they were just joking. So my ex-husband wasn't any different from most of the men that I knew when I was growing up. But what the depression did was it exacerbated his abuse to the point where I could actually see it, where I realized it was abuse. He wasn't just being a jerk. It was really abusive um, and it was harmful and it was definitely harming me. And he could not, he could not hear that. I, I don't, I don't even bother to try and discuss anything with him because I keep telling myself, you know, if he didn't get it in 25 years that you were married, he's not going to get it now. So you just have to let it go. The, the biggest fruit was, you know, it's interesting when you, when you get out of a marriage where you're abused, you think you're finished with abuse. But I went into the special education classroom and I taught high school kids who were labeled emotionally disturbed. And they were certainly 
Um, they certainly verbally abused me. And I even had colleagues who verbally abused me. Um, and every time it would happen, it would be another journey that I would have to go through and I would have to learn how to set boundaries and I would have to learn how to take care of myself in all these different situations. So in a way, that's been that's been one of the biggest parts of the recovery is knowing how to set boundaries and, and getting really good at it so that it doesn't take me a really long time to do it. I can just do it right up front with people. So. That is so, so good. I think that's something I hear a lot of women especially struggle with because of the mean teasing. I grew up that way too. And um, it's it really sneaks up on you. It's like the family's having fun. We're all enjoying each other's company. Somebody says something that maybe somebody else wouldn't be hurt by, but you are. But then you're like, nobody else would be hurt. So you don't say anything. Then it happens again because you didn't say anything. Then it happens again because you didn't say anything. And it's like, not because you didn't say anything, but because there was not a boundary set because you're not empowered as a child to set boundaries at all. You're not, you're not. And you're just told, oh, other people get to decide what too sensitive is. Other people get to decide what the threshold of what you should handle, what you should be able to handle is. Other people get to decide that. Yes, exactly. And it sounds like that's kind of what doctors did, where it's like, you're saying, I mean, akesthesia is awful from what I've heard. Uh, I'm probably saying- I, I don't know for sure, but when I read Thanks. descriptions of it, I would say on the milder end, certainly not the full-blown that a lot of people have had. I would say on the milder end, that was probably what was happening to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but even the milds, that just sounds, sounds horrible. And you're telling the doctors, I feel terrible. This is not working. First of all, it's making me feel terrible and it's not fixing the problem. And they're basically telling you like, oh, it's fine. You're being too sensitive in another, in a different way, like in a different context. So it's like, we've all been, we've all grown up in this soup of either you're the mean teaser or you're the recipient of the mean teasing and it's all just a it's a terrible boundary issue also i don't ever remember any discussion about like how you actually are allowed to set boundaries with your doctor like you're allowed to say no i won't feel this way anymore or you know i will find you know another doctor or whatever not that i mean there are there are thankfully there are doctors now like i don't know if you heard of dr uh, peter bragan Yes. Oh, yeah. I've I've done a lot of reading of Peter Bregan's work. Absolutely. He's he's a fierce um, advocate for people who don't want to use ECT. He's you know, a lot of his writings were really instructive and I wish I had known about them. Although when I think back on it, I do remember him being on the radio and being put down because he was speaking out against ECT. And, you know, I live near Baltimore. So we have Johns Hopkins and then over in Washington, we have George Washington University Hospital and we have the University of Maryland Hospital. And those are all big places that do that have lots of psychiatry, big psychiatry departments, medical schools, and they use electroconvulsive therapy still. I know there was a moratorium on it at one point because it causes NFL level head trauma. Um, there are more moratorium on the manufacturers of the devices. Um, and well, Bregan did a lot of that work and I really appreciate him for that. He is, he is fierce. He's amazing. He's still, he's still just recently was testifying in court too. I think he's like, Connie Burstow, who, who died a few years ago. She did a lot of work up in Canada. Um, okay. so I, I read some of her journal articles as well. Yes, I, I think right, you're, yeah. right from Mad in America when she was alive. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. I was like, that name sounds familiar. Um, so I, uh, wanted to, uh, we're going to transition a little bit. I'm, uh, to the altar of innocence, which you has, have said is a memoir in verse, which, um crashes uh, uh prose memoir and here we have the memoir in verse it's uh before you found the records that your dad kept of your mom's treatment and 
Um, cause I also would love to talk about the, uh, abolition prison abolition work that you do. That is, um, they seem, they seem related to me and we'll, we will get there. Hopefully I, we only have a probably 15 ish minutes left, but, um, I want, uh, we will at the end, let everyone know where they can find the book crash, um, as well as these other collections. But I wondered if you wanted to share a poem from the altar of innocence, which came out in 2015, um, we will also tell folks how to to get that collection as well. Uh, and then we'll jump into a discussion on poetry. Okay, so um, this is a poem called Diagnosis. Diagnosis. There's something stuck in your affect and when it lifts, you'll be fine. It's that long slide from hopeful to bereft as the gaudy landscape of my life falters in the hallways. Doctors offer their gifts, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Buspar, six weeks of one and six weeks of another until the gods of serotonin and dopamine push me back into the light. When my spirit soars with easy smiles and ready laughs, the doctors shake their heads and mutter, manic, bipolar too. I lose my vocabulary. I gain 50 pounds. I undress alone in the dark. New drugs tamp me down to some arbitrary normal. Life spreads itself before me, daily postcards of people and plans. But I feel nothing except the smooth surface of the picture, unable to enter its world. Kind of like what we had just talked about, but in such a sharp image way mm -hmm. I could follow even as it was like madness too like I could follow and also the surprising turns of that that just you think it's hopeful and then they say no manic it's like because you big pharma just need to have all the markets don't you <laughs> you need to have the sadness market and the happy market <laughs> oh and I remember this, the, the one doctor who told me, the Hopkins doctor, who told me that I had um, mild atypical hypomania because uh, Ellaville made me feel too good for two days. And I said to him, well, what's so abnormal about feeling really good for a couple of days after you've been depressed for a year and a half? Yeah, isn't and that the goal? <laughs> And, it, you know, that's the arbitrary normal. He he had something in his mind that was an arbitrary normal. And I do write about that experience in the book and I explain it and I give the, um, you know, the background about the drugs and everything. Oh, it's too, yeah, that is, I mean, that, and that does tie into the uh, prison system before we had uh, gotten on recording, um, and we were sort of discussing what we would discuss um, that you had you had made a comment that the prison system is pretty similar to the mental health system, which is also something that I've that I've heard um, as well. And you wrote a collection called Once You're Inside. Um, and I'm going to just quote from the preface. Uh, this is a there's a, a really well done framing of this uh, this collection. Uh, you wrote in in 2015, my editor at Little Pot, and I'm actually going to ask now, how do you say this word? Patuxent? Patuxent. It's it's named for an, a Native American tribe. Little Patuxent. Patuxent. Okay. I was close. <laughs> my editor at Little Patuxent Review, a Maryland literary journal, gave me an assignment I wanted to refuse. She asked me to interview a professor who ran a prison-based writing group and then to visit the prison and interview the men. So why didn't you refuse the assignment? Well, basically, you just don't say no to your editor. <laughs> uh, that's true. I can confirm. So I didn't, you know, I thought, okay, I could go in one time. I'll I'll go with this professor. The professor kept saying to me, these are some of the nicest men I've ever met. I love spending time with them. And I'm like, okay, you say so. 
I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how old they would be. I didn't know, you know, because I had in my mind the kids that I taught in high school and how they treated me. And they were pretty surly and angry and, you know, which I understand. I'm not blaming them. I They were teenagers. I know why they were acting that way. But I, that's kind of what I expected when I went into the prison. But, and also, like, that's a TV picture as well. But when I went in there, oh, my gosh, they were, you know, like, how do you do, Miss Bracken? We're so glad that you came today. And, you know, they all brought their notebooks and they were all wanting to share everything. And it 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 was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And then when I heard their stories, I, I had to interview five people in 90 minutes. And I I came up with two questions. Who were you before you came in? And who are you now? And that that just told me everything. They they it it was unbelievable, you know, their insight into into what made them do what they did when they were teenagers and then who they were at 30. Yeah. That I mean that's and that shows up in this. I mean, this collection is it's fascinating. It seems like it's a choral or chorus of different uh, voices from people who've had experiences on the inside. I'm curious when I was when I was reading these poems, I got so curious about what relationships in prison are like. Uh, there's this line from Hope on Hold that um, that you wrote that goes, "Once you're inside, every smile is suspect, every glance a risk." And I wonder um, what what your perspective on relationships like among the inmates are like do they form and if they form are they real do they does prison break the relationships with people on the outside uh how does how does prison f form or warp human relationships and is it like just a totally different way of having relationships on the inside versus the outside i would say it's different having relationships i would say that the men that i met um bonded with each other i don't know how you know one of the reasons i kept going back was because they were so amazing i kept thinking they live in this god-awful place the the environment is terrible the food is terrible you know it's dirty as hell they're not treated well and yet they're so nice and they smile and they keep coming to the writing class and they're interested. And, you know, somehow they manage to form relationships. And I think a lot of it is due to the work that the men themselves do. I don't, there are programs in the prison. They're few and far between. The prison where I was volunteering is supposedly a therapeutic prison, although that was debatable, but um, I did see relationships, but the, you know, the suspicion is of all the people that are coming in that you don't know, like the new people that come in, you have to, you have to guard yourself before you smile at somebody, you know, a new person comes in, you're not going to just be like friendly, like if you were in a class together or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they somehow have to prove themselves to each other without tripping up there is there like a code like a prison code that i think there is although they never i never asked and they you know i wasn't going to get get into all that like i never i never said anything at all even close to sex for one thing i didn't open that it although one day i did say because there was this big scandal in one of the baltimore prisons about the the um, correction officers having sex with the prisoners. And I said, that just seems to be a terrible idea, terrible abuse of power, blah, blah, blah. And and one of the men said to me, well, Miss Bracken, it's complicated. I said, what do you mean it's complicated? He said, he said, well, like, what if you were engaged to her on the outside? <laughs> I said, yeah, that, that would be complicated. You know, I mean... Because what I learned is that the prison guards and the prisoners, like, all come from the same neighborhood. 
It's just some of them took one road and some of them took another road. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is like nothing you've ever experienced. It's, you know, it's like nothing you've ever experienced. And I was, I was treated really well by the men. And I, I was more afraid because of things I've read, not because of anything anybody ever did. I was just more afraid of the guards or the correction officers because of what I've read. Although I was in the awkward position of having to rely on them for my security if something would go wrong. Yeah. So it it really was quite a dance. It was a quite a dance. Completely different world, it seems, that you you don't really experience an analog in any other area if you're not involved. I used to come out and I used to just be like, like stunned whenever I got out of the prison. <laughs> yeah. Kind of wander around for a while. <laughs> right. right. Get reoriented back to, to this reality. Right. Um, but the, the way that it's like a psych facility, being a psychiatric patient, is that you get dismissed as a psychiatric patient, like, oh, well, you're mentally ill. So so we can't believe anything you say, or you don't know what you're talking about because you're mentally ill. So they just dismiss you and they don't listen to you. It's the same way with prisoners. People would say to me all the time, well, don't you think they were running a game on you? And I'd say, you know, I never, I never had that feeling. I, if, if anybody was, I never had that feeling. I felt like they really cared that I cared um, to be there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned that they were interested in the in the creative writing classes. Um, there's a line from this the poem. I I grabbed some lines to uh, from when I was reading. Once you're inside, it's from the poem. My sister brought me a gift. Uh, JC speaks about his work. This poetry is my relationship to everything that's alive. It motivates me when I read someone else's work. It touches my heart. I'm joined to them by our mutual feelings. So th this line answered the question. One of the questions I had was, which was, oh, interesting. Interesting choice of creating um, a collection of poetry to talk about your experience in prison rather than like ex essays or uh, a memoir or short stories. This answered that. Poetry is my relationship to everything that's alive, um, which is the speaker, JC, uh, said that but let's let's talk about that do you do you relate to that is that kind of a, a similar thing like what what was the choice of between like poetry and prose choosing poetry to kind of process the experience of volunteering in a prison to uh teach the creative arts and form of writing the prisoners poetry gives you distilled snippets like the poem i read about the the diagnosis that was a really distilled snippet of a lot of the memoir um i was overwhelmed by my feelings in the prison by my shock at the physical conditions of the rooms the dirtiness the the lack of any kind of amenities the heart the terrible food the just everything um and the stories that the men would tell me. And so I would just sit there a lot of times while they talked and take notes. And then when I got home, I would write it up into a poem. But it it was a way to for me to process the experience to like, wow, what, what can I do with this? I can shape it into something else. And pretty soon after I started working there, I decided I was going to write a poetry collection. Um, because I was just like tons of other people that would drive by a prison and just think, well, they deserve to be there. And I never gave it two thoughts. And um, now I feel a whole lot differently about, about it. I, you know, having been a special ed teacher and having experienced the beginning end of what they call the school to prison pipeline and, and, you know, excessive discipline in some of the public schools 
and then to see where, because those are the kids I was working with. I used to go in there sometimes and think, I wonder if I'm going to see anybody who was in my class. Because those boys, it was usually boys, were very disaffected and they were, you know, they had a lot of stuff and, and they were skirting around with uh, the excitement of breaking the law. Let's just put it that way. So, but I never did. I never saw any of them oh, in prison. <laughs> yeah, I had not made that. I mean, I knew about the school to prison pipeline, but I had not made that connection being on both ends of that. Um, so I we have about probably less than 10 minutes left. I wanted to ask you to read a poem from Once You're Inside. Before I do, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I would have? About crash or about any of it any of it once you're inside crash your experience no, I didn't talk at all about my mother and all I will say briefly is that my mother was a beautiful um intelligent sensitive woman who unfortunately suffered from profound depression chronic pain and anxiety for over 40 years and I, I never knew why and I thought for the longest time that it was because she drank in combination with taking those drugs and because she she got really inadequate therapy. And halfway, I had already written a version of the memoir. And in 2018, I found my father's records of my mother's illness, which I can't believe he saved what he saved, uh, insurance forms. Um, drug receipts for all the drugs that she took for like seven or eight years, um, a, a timeline of all the times that she had electroconvulsive therapy. It 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 was a stamp. Letters that he wrote to doctors. All he dad was an inveterate letter writer. I, have, you know, and and in the letters he chronicled her whole illness and he talked about all the drugs that she took. And as soon as I read this one paragraph, I knew why my mother didn't recover. He he talked about in the very beginning, 1959, when she had postpartum depression, um, her first psychiatrist gave her two antidepressants, um, Ritalin, an antipsychotic, a barbiturate, and a drug called Dexamil, which they don't even make anymore because it's so addictive, which is Dexedrine and uh, barbiturate in six weeks. Now, I don't, I don't know whether they gave her all those drugs at the same time, but it doesn't matter. Six weeks of any combination would be enough to like put you over the edge. She was a petite woman, five foot four, about 120 pounds, and she was nursing a newborn. And they were giving her all those drugs for postpartum depression. Yes. And once I started reading about the drugs and I, the two things that my mother suffered from the most were anxiety and insomnia. And nearly every combination of drugs that she took had an adverse effect of anxiety or insomnia. And I feel, and I, I'm positive that's why she started drinking. She was just trying to to get a handle on the anxiety and the insomnia that the drugs were causing. It wasn't my mother. It was the drugs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then what, what effects those that might have on the newborn? Yes. <laughs> yes. Although my sister seems fine. I she seems fine. Um, but that's another reason for telling the story. It's like, this is not a new story about psychiatry that they over drug people and they listen to women. It's not a new story. We, and I'm older, you know, I have to be even more careful because my liver is a lot older and it's not going to process drugs the way that it did 20 years ago. And people my age are frequently over overdrugged you know i have that are taking five and ten drugs at a time and i can't say anything because number one i'm not a doctor number two it's their choice if they want to do that but i i'm very aware that it's happening all around me 
Right. And it's not, I mean, it is their choice, but it, they're not fully informed, are they? Because none of us are. Not fully informed. And do a bunch of digging. Right. And you don't start digging until you, until it affects you in a negative way. Right. Until something bad happens, that's, you, you don't, you're not propelled into having to figure out why you're metaphorically or literally crashing. Right. Exactly. Um, well, so part, I, of, part of the book was an homage to my mother, like, mom, mom, none of this was ever your fault. You were a beautiful, wonderful person. And, you know, maybe this is my way of when I was a little girl, I wanted to help you. Maybe this is my way of helping you now. That's yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, that it's because uh, she she does make a large appearance in the book and it's the way that, uh, at least the way I read it, um, there's this, uh, because she, she did not, unfortunately she did not recover, but the, but her story kind of has in you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that I think is that what, that's what part of the recovery is. It's like, yes, it's for you. It's also for your, your family line and it's reclaiming what was lost with or stolen from your mom reclaiming it for for you uh well and that's i think that's so so powerful um i'm going to to have you read a poem and then we'll talk about where people can find crash the altar of innocence once you're inside all of your other writings um and also provide those links in the show notes uh as well so i would love for you to read from once you're inside I'm going to read a poem. Now, all these poems are true. And this poem um, is definitely true. It's It's called The Mental Health Box. It must be purposeful. The green container affixed to the wall. The lid flush against the box bound with a lock. It doesn't take up much space. I feel foolish when I tell the social worker every week when I walk by, I wonder what's in the mental health box. I imagine torn pieces of paper, men filling the box with furtively written requests stuffed in as they walk past. Like, please don't restrict my visitors or my cell, my cellmate has been in solitary for a year. When's he getting out? Or why can't we have college classes? I need a fan in my cell, please. The social worker is silent. Then she shakes her head. I have no idea what's in that box. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Isn't that the truth about the whole, both systems, (laughs) both systems really? The people who do know seem to be the the writers, the journalists, the people who something bad happened and they weren't getting answers, so they found them themselves. And you are one of those writers um, and journalists. And so uh, thank you so much for sharing your story and for coming on to this podcast to share with um, our listeners here. Where can people find more about you? Where can people find Crash, uh, Once You're Inside, The Altar of Innocence, all of the writings that I'm I'm sure you're still publishing. So where can people find you? My website is very easy to find. It's www.annbrackenauthor.com. And on the homepage, I have links for all of my books that will take you to either bookshop.org Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Excellent. We will make sure to link that in the show notes as well so that you can uh, definitely get Crash. Um, that's the the book that started me on uh, this uh, journey of getting to know, getting to know Anne for real, not just from the book, but you do get to know her story. That's one thing I love about memoirs. Um, and um, there are also, uh, there's encouragement there for those who are, um, struggling who 
need answers, who are feeling alone and lost in this world of big pharma and mental health and not feeling better from the medication that they're telling you should feel better from. Um, it's one of the reasons Crash was written. So uh, I know there's a lot of people out there who are struggling for answers and who are not getting them from the systems that are uh, set up to help you. So um, this book has been, uh, it's amazing. I've passed it to several people who are um, in the, some journey of the uh, getting out of the medication over medication maze. So Thank you so much for coming on, and and uh, I will uh, make sure that we link everything so that readers, listeners um, can dive in to more of your story. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you, Megan. It was a pleasure to talk with you. It's a pleasure as well. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time here on the Poetry Channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>